Well, good morning, Four Corners. Praise God that we get to gather again today and worship Him. That's what we're doing. Worship is not just singing, but it is also preaching and hearing preaching. Those uh, are also aspects of worship. We worship the Lord by learning from His Word. And it reminds me of family worship. You know, we gather in the evenings to do family worship with our families and we sing praises to God, but we also learn from His Word. It's a part of what we, what we do individually and as families and as a church. And so now we come to that portion of our worship service. But before we get into our text this morning, I just want to make a couple of quick announcements. Most of you are probably already aware that uh, we will actually not be having our first service in the new building on September the 8th. Uh, There were some issues, inspection issues, and there is now a fire marshal appointment for September the 12th. And so uh, we we hope shortly thereafter we will be in the new building. So just wanted to make you aware of that in case you are not already aware of it. So stay tuned on that. We'll be making announcements through Realm and also uh, in the bulletin and other means as well. Also, quick announcement about the New City Catechism. So for a lot of us, catechism is a lost art. It's uh, something that's very strange. It sounds uh, weird. It sounds like something people did maybe 300 years ago or in other kinds of churches. But catechism is an important part of the life of the Christian family and the life of of the Christian church where we pass on the faith that we have to the future generations. And so we take that seriously here as a church, not just for the kids, but also for the adults. And so uh, Craig Steffen is leading the effort uh, to uh, go through the catechism, the New City Catechism as a church. Catechism is a question and answer method of teaching where you ask your, your child, for example, what is, your, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer that we are not our own, but belong to God. And so these are just, what is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything. These are you know, ways that we teach our kids the Christian faith. And so the New City Catechism is 52 questions. It's a very concise way to do this. Kind of give a systematic theology for, for children. So your six-year-old uh, doesn't need to go read um, Wayne Grudem or Calvin's Institutes or whatever. You can just ask them these questions and begin to lay that foundation for future years. Um, On September the 8th, we'll start with question one. And basically, there will be a new question every two weeks. And the idea is that we do this at home. We do this in our gatherings as a church, uh, making it a part of our conversation as a church. I really do believe that if, if families will commit to this, you will see the fruit of it in the lives of your children. We memorize scripture, obviously, That should be a part of our lives. But catechism offers us a way to give a systematic uh, telling of Christian truth to the next generation. So we pray as elders that we will take this seriously. If you have any questions, see Craig. You can download the app, pick up a flyer from the lobby, buy the book, visit the website. And uh, we look forward to talking more about that. So today we continue our series on Genesis. We are going through the entire book of Genesis, and uh, we are kind of nearing the end of Genesis. I like to think about we sort of made that final turn, and we're sort of headed towards the finish line. We can see it. Not that anyone is anticipating that necessarily, but we at least are making our way through. And today we're in chapter 36. So if you would go ahead and go there in your Bibles with me. Genesis 
chapter 36. This is, as Ken prayed, the moment that you all have been waiting for. Uh, This is another genealogy. And and this one's a little more difficult, right? Because it's uh, more expansive, it's more verses, a lot of branches going on. And it's not one of those genealogies that really yields a lot of interest, even to someone who would be interested in previous genealogies. The genealogy, say, for example, of uh, the sons of Seth, going from Seth to Noah. Or the genealogy coming off of the sons of Noah, which gives us... Uh, kind of a, uh, a, a, an account of the history of the nations of the world. That's interesting uh, in some way. I mean, I think it is interesting, but most people who would not find genealogies interesting might find that interesting. Probably not the case for a genealogy of Esau, but that is where we are today. The title for the sermon this morning is The Other Son. And I'm going to try to put this genealogy, set this up for us a little here in the introduction, then as we go through, so that you, you're able very quickly to see what the import of it is. Why is it developing or why is it unfolding the way that we have it here in chapter 36? So the title is The Other Son. Last week, we were in chapter 35 of Genesis, where we got a climax to Jacob's story and the end of Isaac's story. So, in fulfillment of God's promises and in fulfillment of Jacob's vow, Jacob returns to this place called Bethel, the house of God, to build an altar and to worship the Lord. We know that the Lord had first appeared to Jacob in a dream as he was leaving his family on the run from his brother, and he was there all alone, and God came to him in a dream. And God made some promises to Jacob, the same promises he had made to Abraham and Isaac. And specific to Jacob, God promised that he would be with him and bring him back to this land. Well, that was on this patch of land that he woke up and he called Bethel. And so all throughout the Jacob narratives, you're you're waiting for him to get back to Bethel so that God's faithfulness to him would be demonstrated. And that's what we got last week, that Jacob returns To Bethel. And Jacob had vowed that he would worship the Lord there in that place if God would take care of him. And God did, and Jacob fulfilled his vow. So we got a climax for Jacob. And then at the very end of chapter 35, we read this concerning Isaac. And you can go there and look at that now if you'd like. Verse 29 And Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So there we go. A climax for Jacob and the end for Isaac. And so I made the point last week that chapter 35 is a transition in Genesis. It it transitions us away from the patriarchs. The focus has been Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what we get in chapter 35 is a transition. With the death of Isaac and with a climax for Jacob, we get a transition away from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the 12 sons of Jacob. 
So that's where the focus will be for the remainder of Genesis is Jacob will pop in and out of the story. And of course, we'll get his death at the end of the book. But the focus is on the sons of Jacob for the remainder of the book. So where do we go from here after chapter 35? Yes, as we would expect, we go to the story of Joseph and his brothers, which begins in chapter 37. And I anticipate getting there. I'm excited to get into the story of Joseph. And that picks up in chapter 37. But before doing that, we have to pass through chapter 36. We can't just skip it. We can't just skip this genealogy, no matter how many strange names we have to pronounce and how many verses we have to read with those strange names in them. We have to pass through chapter 36. It is part of what the Holy Spirit has inspired for us to take in for edification as God's people. And it is also part of the intentions of the author, Moses, as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it is part of the book. So here we are at this genealogy. Moses, the author, wants to bring closure to the Esau branch of the family. That's what this chapter is about. Big idea. The other son, besides Jacob, that is. Moses wants to tie up this loose end. He wants to bring closure to this branch of the family. To tie up this loose end. And he wants to set it aside so that he can get on with the story of the chosen line of Jacob and his descendants. Remember, that's the focus of Genesis. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, as we'll see in a little while, this also provides context for the Israelites. Remember, the first readers of this book are the Israelites in the wilderness who, will, who are engaging and will engage with the descendants of Esau. So it gives them, it, it situates these people in their context. Now, this whole idea of, of tying up a loose end, tying up a loose branch, and setting it aside, we've seen this before with Ishmael. You remember back in chapter 25, tying up and setting aside the Ishmael branch with a genealogy. Remember, we got that back there in 25. Both Ishmael and Esau are, yes, they are descendants of the patriarchs. Ishmael is a son, a blood son of Abraham. And Esau is a son, a blood son, a natural son of Isaac. But neither of them is part of the chosen line. The line of promise, the line of faith, the line of deliverance and blessing. And remember, that's what Genesis is all about. At the very beginning of the book, Genesis chapter 3, we are set up when God pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve and the serpent or Satan. When God pronounces judgment, he says that one will come from Eve who will crush the head of Satan. And so we're looking for a deliverer. There's a promise of a deliverer, a a seed, an offspring, a descendant, one. And then we get to Abraham and we begin to read those narratives. And in chapter 22 of Genesis, God promises Abraham, through your offspring, 
all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we learn this as we're going through Genesis, that the promise is of one person, one man, he, a seed, who will bring deliverance and blessing to the world. That's where we have been all along. And the line for all of that, going from Genesis to Revelation, is through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not through Ishmael and Esau. So what do we see here? Before we read this text, what do we see here? As the author ties up and sets aside Esau. You can look at your bulletin there and you'll see the outline that we have today. Just want to make one little correction there on the third point. It's ascendancy in the place. So just note that. Not that important, but you can just take note of that. So what do we see here? We see that he is away from the promises, Esau. We see the accumulation of the people who come from him. Edom or the Edomites, accumulation of descendants. And we see the ascendancy of his people in their respective place. So those are the big ideas of this genealogy, chapter 36. So three points to guide us through the text this morning. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and give you the passages of this larger passage that relate to each of these points. So that you have in your mind, if you get lost and you start to drown... You you can always go back up to the main idea, each of these three main ideas, to situate yourself. And so here they are. Away from the promises, verses 1 to 8. So that's the focus of those verses. Accumulation of the people, verses 9 to 19. And ascendancy in the place, verses 20 to 43. All right, so if you would, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of... God's word. Once again, I encourage you to have your gospel community group leaders uh, read this for you at the beginning, <laughs> at the beginning of group this week. With all of these names. So here we are. Genesis 36. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for his people. These are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Oholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Sibeon, the Hivite. And Basamath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basamath bore Reuel. And Oholabama bore Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So I'll just stop there and say that's the first point away from the promises. And now we get to the second, verse 9. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basamath, the wife of Esau. 
The sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Tsepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These are the sons of Basamath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Tzibayon, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. The chiefs, Taman, Omar, Tsepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Emalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son. The chiefs, Naha, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife. The chiefs, Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholabama, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. So that's the second part, accumulation of the people. And now we finish verses 20 to 43. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Tzibayon, Anna, Dishon, Eitzer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hamam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Abal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Tzibayon. Aya and Anna. He is Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Tzibayon, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon, and Aholabama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Keron. These are the sons of Eitzer, Bilhan, Zaavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Utz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs, Lotan, Shobal, Sibayon, Anna, Dishon, Eitzer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhabah. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Yobab died, and Husham of the land of the Tamanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrekah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died. And Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place. The name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mahet, Mahetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahav. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, 
Japheth, Aholabama, Ela, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. You can be seated. (laughs) So there we are. So as I said, your gospel community group leaders will have a good time this week reading that, that long passage of names. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help. And we trust that the Lord can make even a passage like this edifying to his people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be among friends in the gospel this morning. Friends, brothers, and sisters, Lord, we are a family. We will worship you forever in glory. We will live in a new heaven and a new earth in perfect bliss, delivered and blessed by Christ, our King. Father, we thank you that we dwell this morning among a people who are redeemed. And we have each other. More than that, Father, we thank you that we have you as our Abba. And we pray to you this morning as Abba, Father. We thank you that you are a God who cares for us and a God who can do all things. Is anything impossible for the Lord? No, is the resounding answer of all of Scripture that nothing is impossible for you, God. And so we come before you this morning humbly. We pray that you would humble us in our own hearts, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would take your word, which you sanctify us with, Lord. We know that because Jesus says, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. By your truth, we are sanctified, God. And we know that even Genesis 36 is your word. It is your truth, and it is for our sanctification. And so, Lord, we ask you this morning to use your word. Show yourself faithful among your people, that you would do mighty things among us, in us today, through this passage. We trust you, God. We trust in the power of your word, feebly, but we do trust, and we ask for greater trust. We pray that you would exalt yourself and humble us in dependence on you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin this morning as we look at the other son. I want to begin first with our first point, away from the promises. Away from the promises. One of the things that we are to get from this chapter is that Esau is away from the promises. I want to go back a little and give you three snapshots of Esau. Three snapshots that provide some much needed insight into his character, into his mindset. These are snapshots that we've encountered already that help us to understand what is going on in Esau's mind, but also what is going on in these eight verses. Because what we're reading in these first eight verses builds on and is an outworking of what we've seen already about Esau. So first snapshot, let's look at each of these briefly. Chapter 25, verses 32 to 34. I'm going to read these and I'll explain. First snapshot. Chapter 25, 32 to 34, Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use 
is a birthright to me. Of what use is a birthright? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That's the first snapshot. The first snapshot is Esau comes in. He's tired. He wants some food. Jacob is making some stew. And he says, give me some of that stew. I feel like I'm going to die. Of course, he's not going to die. He seems fine. But he's willing to give up his birthright as the eldest son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. He's willing to give up his birthright for a bowl of soup. What that tells us about Esau is that he saw the birthright and therefore the family and therefore the heritage and therefore the promises made to this unique family. He saw all of that as a little thing. Do you see that? He despised what was great, what was weighty, what was of utmost significance. He laid it aside and treated it as a small thing. That's the first snapshot we have to get before we can really deal with these verses. Second snapshot, chapter 26, verses 34 to 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So what does this tell us? Here we are in the midst of a family. You remember Abraham when he had his son Isaac and he wanted a wife for his son Isaac? He goes through all this trouble to tell his servant to go back to his kinsmen, go back to his family in Haran, to go back toward Mesopotamia and to find a wife from there for his son. And remember, not only Abraham's wishes, but also God's providence in making that happen. God blessed that endeavor with his providence. Remember the servant went there and everything just worked perfectly She happened to come to the well, the one who would marry Isaac, and and she does exactly what the servant prayed she would do. Genesis 24 tells that story. What that tells us here, when we read that Esau married women of the land, is it tells us that he has no regard for, once again, the heritage of the family, the wishes of his grandfather and the providence of God. You see, the Canaanites were destined for destruction. The Lord had told Abraham that he would send back the people when the iniquity of the Canaanites was complete. And that's what we get with the Exodus. We have God bringing his people out of Egypt, and then he brings them as a flood over the Canaanite peoples for all of their idolatry, gross, awful sexual immorality, And all forms of child sacrifice and other things. You can read about that in Leviticus 18. The Canaanites were a very wicked people. And here Esau, in light of all of that, puts all of that aside and just marries women of the land. Birthright of no account. Marrying certain kinds of people, going back to Abraham's family. No, of no account. I'll take what I want here. This is where I live, right? Second snapshot. The third snapshot of Esau comes from chapter 27, verse 38. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. What's this telling us? Well, so Jacob pretends to be his brother. He goes in. He has the goat 
skin, the, the goat fur on his, uh, on his arms. He wears his brother's cloak. He and his mother are conspiring. Esau's, uh, Isaac, his dad, is old and can't see. And Jacob comes in and pretends to be his brother so that Isaac would bless him instead of Esau. Esau comes back from hunting, prepares the food for his dad, and thinking he's about to be blessed, receive the blessing from his father. And his dad tells him, your brother's already come in and taken the blessing. And what does Esau say? Have you but one blessing? Why is that so significant? It's significant because all Esau wants is a blessing. Any blessing will do. He just wants to be blessed. He just wants to have much. He just wants to live in prosperity as he knows his father and grandfather have by God's faithfulness to his promises. He wants stuff, things, blessing, not the blessing. Have you but only one blessing, my father? Give me one too. There's only one. Esau cares nothing about it. Any blessing will do for this man. So those are three snapshots that are very significant for understanding what we have here in verses 1 to 8. Esau is a man who lives only for what's right in front of him. Do you hear that? He lives only for what is right in front of his face, for instant gratification, for earthly pleasure. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 reflects on Esau, says this about him. See to it, speaking to the Christians, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, or you could say godless there, depending on how you translate that. Sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. In other words, it's interesting. The writer of Hebrews would have us to go back and read about Esau and see a quality about him. And the quality about him, what's in his character is this. That for him, a a single meal is better than the importance of all the promises of God and all the spiritual things attached to that. For him, a single meal, or you could say here, a single moment of pleasure. How often do people, for a single moment of pleasure, throw their lives away? That's what Esau did. And that's what we do when we give our hearts over to sexual immorality. And so the writer of Hebrews is not saying that Esau was sexually immoral. He's saying that that character trait, that quality of heart that grasps for the immediate at the expense of the eternal is wicked and will destroy your life. And nothing communicates that more than sexual immorality. So I think this is an opportunity for us to examine our own hearts. To ask ourselves in what ways we might be setting aside all of those spiritual things, eternal things, unchanging things for moments of fleeting pleasure. I mean absolutely nothing. Esau instructs us in this very important way as we live the Christian life. Kent Hughes says this. For every generation... The challenge is the same, to see that there is more to life than a meal or a video game or baseball or a party or a movie or an indulgence of some kind. To see, as Paul put it, that the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
Esau could only see the seen. He could not see the unseen. Jacob could, by God's grace and electing purposes. Esau could not. So as a worldly, unholy, godless man who lives for earthly pleasures, Esau, here's the point, Esau is a man who has always lived in his heart away from the promises. He's always done that. And that's what we see here in verses 1 to 8. In his marriages and in his move, he is the son who lives away from the promises. So in his marriages, verse 2, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. He married the Hittites and the Hivites, and we've already encountered this. And he married, of course, trying to make matters better. He married a daughter of Ishmael. So as though that would make the situation better. A quick note here. There are some differences here with the previous lists of Esau's wives. This is a tedious matter, but I would be remiss if I didn't point it out. If you go back and you look at the names of Esau's wives in previous passages, look at the names of Esau's wives here, there's a, there's a difference between those listings. So what is going on with that? One commentator, Kenneth Matthews, says this. It is possible that the sets of names include reference to the same women under two different names and or a fourth wife but with the same name. And one of the things he points out is that all throughout, even Genesis, we get the fact that a person could have two names or a name change. Multiple names, Jethro and Raul. We get that with Moses' father-in-law. We also see that person could, name could be changed. Jacob becomes Esau. He's referred to as Jacob. He's also referred to as Esau. And more than one person could have the same name. Name. So it's all I'll say on that, but just to, to let you know that those lists do differ. And so trying to sort of match them up and, and trying to understand how they relate to each other. Which wives here are mentioned uh, probably has to do with the ones who produce descendants, obviously, because we're in a genealogy at this point. We know that these wives would lead Esau and his descendants into idolatry. How do we know that? Well, 2 Chronicles 25.20 speaks of the gods of Edom. So Esau's descendants become pagan idol worshipers. It's interesting too, when you go through the genealogy and you look at the names of the kings, that the name Baal, Baal is attached to the first of that name. And that was a Canaan, a very famous Canaanite deity. So there's worship of Baal. Also, Hadar or Hadad. Hadad is a storm god. And you get that mentioned there too. There you have a king who's named after Baal and you have a, a king who's named after Hadad. Telling us that idol worship and false religion is all interwoven in the descendants of Esau. So we see it in his marriages. We also see this away from the promise, promises in his move. Verse 6, he went. Into a land away from his brother Jacob. Too many possessions. You have Jacob's possessions and livestock. You have Esau's possessions and livestock. And he moves away from the land. Because there's not enough land for both of them. Verse 8. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. All of God's promises. This is important. All of God's promises are tied to this land. You know, one of the things that we have to remember is that God is doing amazing spiritual things all throughout the Bible through very ordinary physical things. 
And one of the things that's so significant in Genesis as God's promises are looming large, as God's work is happening in the lives of his people, is this land, this little strip of land, modern-day Palestine, this little, or Israel, modern-day, or what was at the time of Jesus, Palestine. But here we see it being called Canaan. This land is of utmost importance for the promises of God. It goes back to chapter 12, verse 1. God says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And once he arrived in the land, in the land of Canaan, verse 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. So what do we have here? Esau moves away from this land. This is the land of promise. He marries those women and he moves away from this land while Jacob stays in it. Look at verse 30. Look at chapter 37, verse 1. This is so important. 37, 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Abraham was there. Isaac was there. Jacob was there. Jacob's descendants would come back there. The Christ would be born There, Esau is not there. Esau is away from the promises. All right, so the second thing we need to look at is the accumulation of the people. Accumulation of the people. This is our second point as we work our way through this genealogy. It's been a little while now since we were in Genesis 25. But maybe you'll remember that we had a sermon there entitled, A Finale of Faithfulness. Genesis 25. And in that sermon, we looked at the end of Abraham's life. We looked at how God had brought Abraham through his life. And at the end of his life, he had demonstrated his faithfulness to Abraham in all of these ways as Abraham died there in chapter 25. In 25, 1 to 18, we read of all of these peoples, all of these peoples coming from this man, Abraham, and not just Isaac. It's not just Isaac and his descendants, but also Abraham's descendants through Keturah and then Ishmael and his descendants. And the point that I made back then was that all of these descendants, you got in chapter 25, Abraham has all of these children through Keturah and then Ishmael. We got that genealogy. And the point I made back then in chapter 25 was that all of these descendants that we are reading about there demonstrated that God was being faithful to his promise to make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. Remember, Abraham's name used to be Abram and his name was changed to Abraham because God said to him, you will be the father of a multitude of nations. So chapter 17, verse four, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. There would be one special nation, one And one special line to Christ within that nation. But God would bring many nations, many peoples into being through Abraham. And you know what this tells us? As we look at all these nations, we look at Keturah's sons, and we look at Ishmael's sons, and we go through this genealogy with all these names uh, of Esau's sons, of Esau's descendants, and all these spinoff nations What is is this communicating to us now as as Christian believers, as God's people? It is telling us, it is pointing us forward as we read this to the fact that through Christ, the nations are brought in to belong to Abraham. 
that the nations, the offspring of Abraham, are Christians. We are called in the Bible the offspring of Abraham through Christ by faith. And so all of these nations, these many nations, earthly nations, coming off of Abraham are pointing us forward to the fact that through the Christ, Abraham's descendant, many people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would gather as children of Abraham, worshiping Abraham's God. So just as the genealogy, here's my point. If, you, if I lost you, here's my point. Just as the genealogies of Keturah's sons and Ishmael's sons show this multiplication of nations in action, so too does this genealogy of Esau. We can't miss that. We can't miss the first part, which reminds us that he's away from the promises. It sweeps him away to focus on Jacob. And we can't miss this second major point, and that is that God is demonstrating his faithfulness to Abraham through this accumulation of descendants for Esau. In verses 9 to 19, we see five sons and ten grandsons of Esau. But there are many other descendants implied because these individuals are called chiefs. Verse 15, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. So in other words, this accumulation of Esau's descendants points us back to the God of Abraham. It reminds us that God is faithful to his promises. You might say, well, the big promise is that God would bless all the peoples through his offspring. Yes. The big promise is that he would have a son, and that son was Isaac. The big promise was that he would build a nation through Abraham. Yes. But there were many promises there, and God was faithful to all of them. John Calvin Reflecting on this, says this, and I think this is an important implication for us today as God's people. If God's promise flourished, listen to this, so strongly toward a stranger, a stranger to God's grace, a stranger to knowing God, talking about Esau. If God's promise flourished so strongly toward a stranger, how much more powerfully would it flourish in his own children? Which is what you are, people of God. Christians here this morning. You are God's children. Descendants of Abraham by faith. How much more powerfully would it flourish in his own children. Who through adoption inherited his grace. So in other words, here's the point. When you read of all these descendants of Esau as a Christian today. Your mind should go to God will meet me in this I'm anxious about. God will provide for me security. He will keep me as I am struggling with assurance of my salvation. God will bring me through to the end. God will hear my prayers. And one of the ways we know that is because of what God did in Genesis 36. That even to this man Esau, he faithfully kept his promises. How much more to you, Christian, who call God Abba, Father. Our final point this morning is ascendancy in the place. As we've seen over and over again, many times, God had made Many promises to Abraham. Many different little promises. There were various 
components to his promises, various contours to all of these promises. And one of those promises involved future royalty. Chapter 17, verse 6. You can take a look at this if you'd like. Chapter 17, verse 6. This is what God says to Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And listen to this. And kings shall come from you. Can you imagine that? This guy living in Mesopotamia. Really, he's no one. And God comes to him. Of all people, God comes to him. He wasn't worthy of it. He didn't deserve it. He didn't do anything to earn it. God comes to him and calls him out of this land to go to that land. And God comes to him and tells him he's going to do all these things. He says, kings are going to come from you, Abraham. Not just a king, but kings. Now we know, of course, that this promise of kings looks forward to Israel's kings, right? Especially David, the king of Israel. And ultimately, David's descendant, the Christ. That ultimately, the promise of royalty through the line of Abraham ends in or is pointed towards Christ. The Christ, the anointed one, the king of the Jews, the king of kings, and lord of lords. It's all pointing towards Christ. Yes, specifically, we know that's the case. But even here. In the genealogy of Esau, we get kings coming from Abraham through his grandson. And so in verse 31, look there. What does it say? These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. And we have there after that eight kings mentioned. Kings of Esau, kings over Edom. And then the various tribal regions are mentioned in chapter in verses 40 to 43. All right. So there are two main things that I want you to to see as we finish up this morning, as we move towards the end, there are two main things I want you to see here about these kings in the land of Edom mentioned there in verse 31 and then given a list afterwards. So two main things, very important for understanding what this passage is trying to communicate. First, they take dominion of the land over the Horites. Right before this list of Edomite kings, we get another list. Lots of lists, lots of strings of people here. But notice this. Verse 31, we start getting a list of the kings of Edom. Those are the kings who descend from Esau in particular. But right before that, we get this very, very long list of a number of people, a number of chiefs of the Horites. And these are referred to as, notice it, the inhabitants of the land. So we get get a long list of the kings that come from Esau, sort of, toppling over or overshadowing this long list of chiefs who are the inhabitants of the land. Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 12 explains what happened. It says, The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place. And then Joshua 24.4 gives even further explanation. Listen to this language. This is the Lord speaking. I gave Esau, listen, I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. So what's going on here? What's going on here? What's my point? Although Esau was an unholy, godless man, 
God still gave him a nation and a land to possess. God gave Seir to Esau. God gave this land formerly inhabited by these people called the Horites. God gave this land to Esau. And that's the reason we get a long list of the great men of the land. And then that just gets smashed and toppled over by this list of kings of Esau. Why did God do this? Because he was from Abraham. Because he is the God of Abraham. He is faithful. He keeps his promises always. And he blesses. Even those who do not know him. He blesses. And I think there's a slight parallel here. As we think about the children of believing parents. That we see that God blesses by proximity. They may not come to know Christ. We pray that they will. But we see God's blessings in the lives of people who are under our care or in our lives simply by way of proximity. That God is so faithful to us that it just spills over into the lives of other people. We've seen this with Philistines and the Hittites and other people all throughout Genesis. They're like, God is with you. Laban said, I know God is with you. God's blessed me because of you. Spills over. And I think that's what we have here. God is doing this for Esau because of his love for Abraham. Just as he agreed to spare the entire city of Sodom. If 10 people were found there. 10 righteous people. Through Abraham's intercession, he would spare the entire city. That's the reason he saved Lot. For Abraham's sake. That's the reason the angels did not destroy destroy a nearby city is because Lot, after he got out of the city and they told him to go to the hills, he argued with the angels and said, I don't want to do that. I want to go to that place. And the angels said, okay, you can go there, but go quickly. We cannot destroy the city until you get there and we'll spare that city for your sake. What? You know what that means? God was going to destroy that city too. But just because Lot wanted to go there on a whim, God spared it. And we know that God did that for Lot because of Abraham. Do you see that? God's faithfulness to Abraham is written all over this genealogy. This also reminds us of something else. As we think politically. As we think politically. It reminds us that the Lord is God over the nations. Whether they worship him or not. God is sovereign king. God is the Lord of glory. God is the creator and sustainer of all breath. There's no nation in this world that operates outside of his sovereign care and dominion. He's the Lord over every nation. He raises up nations and he topples down nations. He's the king. And we get this language in Acts 17, 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. We all came from Adam. And then it says this. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You know what that means? That God has determined how long every nation will be in power and where they will be in power in his sovereignty. That is the Lord. He is God over the nations. And this reminds us once again, as God moves those 
Horites out. And he establishes Esau and his descendants. He is demonstrating that he controls the nations. But there is a second thing that I want you to see this morning as we close. About these kings of Edom. A second thing we need to see. Verse 31 says this. This is very important. They reign. Listen to this language. Before any king reigned over the Israelites. Why is that so important? I mean, it's just a little, a, little, a, little, a little line there of text. You just fly right over it. These kings, this long list of kings in Edom, descendants of Esau, reigned before any king reigned over the Israelites. Why is that so significant? While Esau's descendants are taking dominion and ruling in their own nation. Listen to this. Jacob's descendants are traveling around like homeless nomads going down into slavery in Egypt and then wandering in the wilderness. Think about that for a moment. If you would have been on the earth during that time, who would be the chosen people of God? Who would be the blessed people of God? If you look merely through earthly, fleshly lenses, it would be Esau and his descendants. They have a land. They have kings. They have greatness. Not the descendants of Jacob. They're in slavery in Egypt. And then they come out and they're wandering around in the middle of nowhere. About to starve to death in Canaan. Going to Egypt. Begging Pharaoh's servant who happens to be their brother. For food. What's going on here? There's so much here I think. But I think we could say at least this. Immediate gratification And exaltation is not God's way with his people. That's not God's way with his people. Which means that when we don't get immediate gratification and when we are not exalted, we should say, praise God. Praise God. This is not how he works in the lives of his people. But true and lasting exaltation through patient faith in the promises that is God's means with his people. Let the Esau's and the Edomites reign. All around us we see people prospering and people succeeding who hate God, who have no regard for God. Let them reign because we know what happens in the end. And we know what God is doing now in the souls of his sometimes destitute people. God is working a greater thing. We will see many around us prosper. But take heart, Christian. The pilgrim's way does lead to the celestial city. It does lead there. I want to close with this passage from Numbers 24, verses 17 to 19. We read this sometimes at Christmas. It's important for this conversation about lack of kings in Israel and kings reigning in Edom. This is what it says. I see him. This is a prophecy about Christ. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. 
It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Christ is the king. And even while kings reign around us in the lives of the ungodly, we know that Christ reigns as king and the meek shall inherit the earth. Those who belong to Christ will reign with him forever in a new heaven and a new earth, despite all the trials and suffering we must endure now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for this genealogy. We thank you for how it points us backwards to Abraham in all of the ways that it shows, even though Abraham had been dead for some time, and although Abraham was buried, his soul lived on in your presence, and you were here on earth working out your promises in the lives of his descendants, even in Esau and Edom. Father, we thank you for how it points us back to Abraham, and it shows us that your faithfulness endures to us past our death. Father, but more than that, we thank you for how it points us forward. How it points us forward to the ingathering of the nations who will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. We thank you for how it points us forward to uh, the, the, th- the great number of people who will be around the throne of the Lamb praising Him for purchasing us people from every tribe and tongue and nation, children, offspring of Abraham by faith in Christ. Lord, the glory of your Bible, the glory of your plan shining through even here in this unexpected place. We praise you for our great king, and we know that he will reign. He does reign, and by grace through faith, we too will reign with him. We praise you for this, Father. Give us strength to walk this path. In Jesus' name, amen.